Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, we're continuing to jump through, I guess not jump through, run through, walk through, a leisurely stroll through the book of Revelation. Oh, we're hauling. Just like on a Saturday in the park with George. This is a uh, with, with George. Which <laughs> yeah, that's a musical. Or a... anyway, oh. let's see. We're, we're coming on some gnarly, gnarly stuff. We've been in uh, last week. We started to jump through chapter sixteen, and these seven bowls of wrath that are poured out. And uh, it, we noted that they are the. It's like the final series of sevens, right? Uh, we yes, had talked yes. about how there's these series of sevens that we we talked about in, in previous other chapters. And so this is representing the end of the story, right? Yes. So remember, there are two main stories in the book of Revelation. There's going to be four scenes or four stories, if you want to call them that. But the first two are stories, chapters one through three, John's on Patmos, sees the vision of Jesus, told to write the seven messages. And then the second one in chapter four, he goes up into heaven, sees God on a throne, and this scene, this heavenly apocalyptic scene where we find out that God's actually the one in charge, and here's how God's going to work the, the will of his kingdom. It's going to play out. And that's the main story from chapters four through 16. Okay. You argued or trying to convince us that the seven seals and the seven trumpets, which are those other sequences of sevens, they're not God's wrath on the world, but it's right. very clear that the seven bowls are made that they're described as bowls of wrath, right? So I'm going to agree with that. Yes, they are God's wrath. This is the final judgment, but it's not the same as what I think people think of, especially when they think, oh, this is God's wrath on the world. We know that 1621, the end of this chapter, marks the end of what I call the second story, the heavenly vision, which began in chapter four. And so the seven bowls are a depiction of the final judgment. And we'll see that in terms of the structural indicators as we proceed through this particular episode today. But the seven bowls then are what we might call the eschatological wrath of God or the kind of like the final judgment. Mm -hmm. And so what it means then is the common popular dispensational understanding of Revelation is that the seals, trumpets, and bowls are God's end times wrath inflicting upon humanity so that they might suffer and then the ones who survive can repent. I use the analogy of, hey, dude, look what I did to your daughter. You better repent so that doesn't happen to you. Like, mm-hmm. That doesn't make any sense at all. That's this isn't not God what's as a mob here. boss, like yeah, a kind of mob boss mentality. We're yeah, Italians, exactly. we could say that's not, a, we can make fun uh, of Yeah, exactly. People. So I think this is not intended to bring the nations to repentance, but this is what happens mm-hmm. when the nations have failed to repent at the end of time. Okay. So we, I think we hinted at this last week, the sixth bowl, it seems like final judgment, it's Armageddon. And that's where we're really going to focus on today is that sixth bowl. Cause this seems to be like a key one. And it's not the first time that the end seems to show up as well. And we need to remind our listeners yeah. that revelation isn't to, met, to be read. We are reading it linearly. We're reading it from chapter one to chapter 22, but it's not depicting events where this happens. And then this happens and this happens. We're seeing this end happen again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Kind of it, some, if you're attuned to the scholarly acumen in terms of the book of Revelation, this idea of re- recapitulation, I wouldn't use that word because I don't think that's what's happening. It's, oh, interesting. it's more nuanced Because that's very popular. That. It's a recapitulation yeah, yeah. idea. It's more nuanced than that. The idea of recapitulation is, I'm going to tell you the same thing again, but from a different angle. It's not telling you the same thing again from a different angle. It's, but at the end of each one of these series, it does take us to the end of the story. So it's a story. It's a narrative. To understand Armageddon, which we'll get to at the end of today, 
Oh, I shouldn't promise that. I've been known to make these promises and then we don't fulfill it. But we're going to make our best effort to get to the discussion of Armageddon. But reminder that what I'll tell you about Armageddon today, hopefully, in chapter 16, we'll confirm that when we see chapters 19 and 20, because that war, what we call Armageddon, is going to occur later on in the book. And mm -hmm. so I think that's important. And that goes back, let's reiterate the point that we just made then. If the sixth bowl is the unleashing of a demonically inspired war against God's people. And I think that's what Armageddon really is. It's not the nations waging war in Israel or something like that. It's a demonically inspired war against God's people. Then there's no way to view this as God's direct judgment upon the world. Hmm. If so, God's responsible for Armageddon and bring wrath against the church or against God's people. It doesn't make any sense. So again, this is God's final eschatological judgment it's portraying the final end and armageddon is like the final end of that of that battle that as we discussed in chapters 11 12 and 13 has been going on since the beginning of time hmm, okay so the account of the seven bowls of wrath it begins with a great voice from the temple what's the significance of the voice coming from the temple so that's chapter 16 verse 1 it begins with this voice from the temple so that's going to serve to link us with several different passages. So chapter 15, verse 16, let me go to there, right? I'm sorry, chapter 15, verse 6, says, after these things, I looked in the temple, the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. Okay, so now you see a voice from the temple. So it connects us to the chapter 15. And then we had in chapter 14, we had references to the two harvests and the son of man sitting on a cloud in chapter 14 and three other angels, they all come out from the temple or from the altar. So it indicates, I think, in chapter 16, 1, that what's about to happen is God is about to act, which again sets the bulls apart from the seals and the trumpets. It's now God about to act and answering the prayers of the saints. Okay. Let's go through each one of the bulls and okay. flesh them out a little bit and see what's going on. So yeah. 16, verse 2. So the angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. What's this represent? So I think what we're happening now is, that, of course, is we're seeing the stress upon God being just in his judgments. We're going to continue to see that. or That's going to be stressed, at least throughout this chapter. But there's actually, in this particular passage, a measure of ambiguity here. Like, what actually is he referring to? Because it's not actually clear that it says that it became, my translation says, it became a loathsome and malignant sore. What is mm -hmm. the it that became mm -hmm. this sore? on the people who had the mark of the beast. I think it actually it's the mark itself is probably the implication. In other words, the mark itself became the source of their pain. And the idea being that they're reaping what they sow. It's you receive the mark of the beast and guess what happens to you? It becomes this painful and loathsome sore on those who had the mark of the beast. From a popular standpoint, growing up in a dispensational background, we read phrases like this, and this is going to allude to something like nuclear warfare or something like this. That's where we should avoid those sorts of reading, right? Yeah, there's nothing in this that's indicating. If you get nuclear war, it's from the seven seals, the sixth seal, this mushroom cloud because the sky rolls uh -huh, up like a uh -huh. scroll. But that's just apocalyptic language of the end of the world that we saw in plenty of Old Testament passages it has nothing to do with nuclear warfare. That's the only way you can read nuclear warfare into it. And that's just reading the scriptures and going, it applies to me, so how could this happen? Oh, it must be nuclear warfare. And then you have this one illusion in chapter 6 of the mushroom clouds, so to speak. And it's like, that's just Old Testament language. It's not forward language, it's backwards language. So with that, my other thought was, especially when I read through the bowls, I'm seeing so much Egypt language here. 
is it right to read so the same thing you read something about harmful painful sources okay that was one of the plagues that, that was poured out on the egyptians is it right to read the egypt story into this Yes. So remember, Egypt becomes the, what's the word I want? Like the prototype or something? Yeah, the prototype. That's a good word. Egypt becomes the prototype, the model from which everything afterwards happens later. So when the prophets later on describe, hey, Babylon's going to come in and destroy you, it uses Egypt language because Egypt became the model that every other effort of nations bringing destruction upon God's people, Egypt becomes the model for, the template for. How's that? Yeah, Egypt yeah, is yeah. the template for it. And so when you see the book of Revelation describing, especially the trumpets and the bulls, they're both using this Egypt language, Egypt imagery. And that's one of the reasons, as a side note here, that people connect the trumpets and the bulls because they both have heavy uses of the Egypt imagery. And oh, mm. so see, it's this recapitulation. The trumpets were Egypt imagery. The bulls are Egypt imagery. It's just telling the same story over again, but with more intensity. And actually, I think we'll see something here in a little bit, in a little bit that we are not the bowls have more in common structurally with the seven messages than they actually do with the seven trumpets. Although as far as the language is concerned, the literary, some of the literary features, it's actually using this Egypt imagery throughout it, which relates it indeed to the trumpets. Okay. So the second bowl, we read about this in verse three of chapter 16, and it says the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. Once again, it just makes me think of the Nile turning to blood, right? Yeah, actually the next one, the third one's going to be more of the Nile because it's a river. Okay. Oh, okay. So this, is, it's a sea. this is sea. Yeah, it's a sea. So sea is a common image for opposition to God, a place of opposition. Remember the beast that comes up out of the sea. Remember Satan's a dragon. And although it doesn't say this in Revelation, but in the Old Testament world, the ancient Near Eastern world, dragons, are the they live in the sea. That's where they're mm -hmm. from. And so we saw the demonic hordes in the fifth and sixth trumpets actually come up out of the sea. Or sea imagery is, is certainly pre present there. Now, I think the effects that follow the pouring out of the second bowl are simply describing the inevitable consequence of humanity's exploitation of the sea. I think that's what's happening here. We'll see this as we proceed defending this assertion. So this is the assertion I'm making. The assertion I'm making is, yeah, this is God's wrath upon the world, and it's his end times final judgment there, not the same as the seals and trumpets that people commonly think where God's pouring out wrath to get you to repent. It's, that's not what's happening here. But I think what you also see, however, in the bulls, is that it's also humanity reaping what they sow. You got that mark, and guess what? Now I've become a loathsome and malignant sore. Guess what? You abuse the seas and use it for this trade that causes human slavery, and raping and pillaging of the land, and destruction of creation, and guess what happens? The sea becomes blood. Now this will become clear, that thesis of mine, that's what's happening. It's, it's the destruction of the creation coming to its full, the final consequence of that. That'll become evident when we get in later on in the chapter 18. Hey everyone, we wanna thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we wanna remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access. But we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. Verse four, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the spring of water and they became blood. 
And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just as you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. There's a lot going on here. Yeah, that's right. So there's your river right there. Uh -huh. And that's the, the rivers. And I think, again, this is also destruction of the world's economic systems because the Nile was a major source of prosperity oh, oh. for Egypt. Right. And that'll be again, get to chapter 18. But also then in accordance with the trumpets, that's where the parallel comes from. We have the salt water in the second bowl and the fresh waters in the third bowl, just like we had in the second and third trumpets there. But yeah, but now here we go. This interjection of chapters of verses five through seven is this constant refrain of, okay, you're just in these judgments. So God's doing this, even though I think what was being narrated is the inevitable consequences of humanity's abuse of mm -hmm. creation. God's doing this and you're just, you are indeed just in these judgments. Now, what's interesting there is this interjection. Oh, it's the third bowl is actually verse four. Verses five, six, and seven that you read is an yeah. interjection. And okay. that interjection occurs after the third bowl. What Remember do you mean by interjection? Seals? Is it like words, commentary? Do it's you a mean that? Pause okay. in the narrative. Okay. So bowl one, verse two, bowl three, bowl two, verse three, bowl three, verse four, bowl four, verse eight, verses five through seven is a pause in that narrative. And that's where, just so people know when they're listening, verse five starts with, and I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you a holy one. So all that part is the interjection that you that's said. That's this interjection. Thank you very much. Okay. That's this interjection. And the interjection occurs after the third, which means, so we have the parallels with the trumpets and the bulls. They both use Egypt imagery. We see, okay, the salt water and then the fresh water. It's going in the order of the trumpets. And so that's why people associate the trumpets and the bulls. But the seals and the trumpets had a 4-3 structure. The first mm -hmm. four seals, and then all of a sudden the fifth one was no longer I heard, but I saw. And the fifth seal was no longer one of the four living creatures. It was I saw on the altar, the soul. Clearly a 4-3 structure. And the four trumpets, we had a 4-3 structure. The first four trumpets happened, and then all of a sudden we had an eagle flying, whoa, to those who live on the earth because of the next three trumpets that are about to sound. A 4-3 structure. But notice that the bowls are a three, four structure. Hmm. Bowl one, bowl two, bowl three. I heard an angel saying, you're just in these judgments. That's what happened in the seven messages of hmm. four, three structure, where all of a sudden, if anyone has an ear to hear, let them hear, comes at the end of the messages for the last four messages, where it was associated with the one who overcomes or before the one who overcomes in the first three messages. So it seems that the seven bowls have structurally related to the seven messages. And I think what that does, it serves as a frame. Seven messages, seven bowls. Here we go. That's the beginning. That's the end. And then the seals and the trumpets in the middle there. I think there's a little bit of a distinction there. And again, that's why another reason why I say this isn't God's wrath in the same way that you might think the seals and trumpets are, which I don't think are God's wrath anyway. That's does that make sense? Structurally, yeah, because yeah, with the seals and trumpets, you also have, while it does have that 4-3 structure, you have four and then you have two and then a, this interjection as mm -hmm. well. And then the final thing, whereas you don't have that with the bowls, you have all seven together. Yeah, that's correct. Although what happened after the sixth and before the seventh was an interlude. What happened after the sixth seal was an interlude before the seventh, 
And what happened after the sixth trumpet and before the seventh was an interlude. This mm -hmm. is an interjection. We saw an interjection after the fourth trumpet and before the fifth with an eagle saying, whoa, that was an interjection. So it's just, a, and again, it's just important because structure is so critical to how we interpret what's happening here. We do not have an interlude happening in the seven bowls. So is this, you would argue that the sequence of seven things seal bowls and trumpets are not really a recapitulation it's not right. the same thing happening three times because what you're saying is while yes similarities in structure with the seals and bowls while there is seven things that happen here in chapter 16 the bowls of wrath do not follow along the same kind of structure even though there's seven of them but that's really the only thing that matches in terms of that structure not maybe the only yeah, thing but yeah. that's the significant and, and, thing and that it's not telling you the same thing with just a little bit different language certainly not with the seven seals they're completely different from the trumpets and bowls so recapitulation is the idea of telling the same thing again from another angle and there's some of that happening but that transcends what a recapitulation idea actually says yeah, yeah. okay Okay. That totally makes sense. Before Let me make one other point oh, here really sure. quick. I'm sorry. And that is the purpose of this interjection in verses five, six, and seven is to stress God's justice. So mm. the seven bowls are God's wrath. That's true. Not in an ethical dilemma here, because this is the final judgment. If you fail to repent, there is a judgment there. As we said all along, I do believe in a final judgment and it's here. At the same time, they're also what the inevitable consequences of human activity bring, you bring destruction upon the economic sources, you bring destruction upon yourself, that mark becomes a loathsome and malignant sore upon yourself. But there's also this encouragement then that God's just in these judgments. You are just in these judgments. And we discussed last time, the bowls are being poured out because you poured out the blood of your saints and prophets. So that's an important stress throughout the seven bowls. The fourth bowl, verses eight and nine. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. So they didn't repent. It, it, even they were reading it, the point of the bowl was to repent. Is, it, like, is that why people properly read the bowls of wrath as God's trying to convince people or coerce people to repent? I guess you can make that argument here. You could try to make that argument here. Oh, that's what's happening. But no, that's not what's happening. Again, in terms of the narrative, you had this at the end of the sixth trumpet, that mm. the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues still do not repent of the work of their hands. So it's the same idea. But that doesn't mean that the trumpets or the bowls here are intending you to actually repent. It's just simply saying that what's happening here does not lead the people to repent. It's telling this isn't the purpose of them. It's just this is what happens. And what's happening is, in the story, what brings the people to repentance is the faithful, loving, sacrificial witness of God's people. So the idea that these are designed to get people to repent doesn't make sense because it's clear that they, they don't repent. Well, is God like futile? Is he, I'm going to try to do these things so that you don't repent, and then they don't. The whole idea is it just, God would be futile in his efforts. No, that's not what's happening. It's a literary feature, and that is repentance doesn't happen these ways. Of course, we know actually there's no repenting here. It's too late. But nonetheless, even the final judgment, I guess you might say, even standing before the great white throne doesn't bring them to repentance. They suffer the inevitable consequences of what's going to happen. Yeah. 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 And, I, it even now, reminds me of the Jonah story where the mm. point of Jonah going to Nineveh wasn't to invoke a repentance response. It just happened to happen. He just said, hey, Jonah, 40 days and you're going to die. Oh, they happened to repent, but that wasn't the reason why Jonah was just casting judgment in a sense. 
in, yeah, in I the guess same I, way. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's I'm reading this, and it's like, sure. yeah, the, the result was that they didn't repent in, in Revelation here. The point of the wrath wasn't to, it wasn't repent or else. It's just even amongst all this, they're still not repenting. Whereas yeah, in the Jonah story, yeah. e even amongst this, oh, they actually did repent. You're just seeing like the way people ought to respond to the oracles of God in a sense. Yeah, yeah. And that I think that's an important distinction, though. What happens in Jonah is it's the oracles of God, whereas mm. here, this is destruction that happens because mm. of the inevitable consequences of your actions. This yes, isn't God's given over to the thing that you love. Yeah. That what they do respond to, actually, the Jonah illustration comes uh, as pertinent because what they do respond to is the prophetic word of God's people. Yeah, yeah. What they don't respond to is suffering the inevitable consequences of their own actions, war, yeah. bloodshed, famine, and things of that nature. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right, so this fourth bowl, then, what's interesting about it is the sun was in, in the intensification of the sun, which can't be taken literally, by the way, because if it's literal, then you're there's going to be death everywhere. And the fifth bowl is as darkness. So how do you, how does this work? But what's happening here is in a literary sense in chapter seven in that interlude we saw the great multitude and who are these? The who, who's this great multitude? Oh, they're the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And then it says. In verse 15 of chapter 7, for this reason, they're before the throne of God because they overcame. They came out of the great tribulation. They were faithful. They're before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his tabernacle. And the one who sits on his throne will spread his temple over, tabernacle over them. Verse 16, they'll hunger no longer, neither thirst anymore, neither will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. Ah, mm. the followers of the lamb, the sun does not beat down on them. Mm. The followers of the beast, the sun beats down on them. And in fact, it's intense pain, but unfortunately, they don't repent. The fifth angel in verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So now notice again from a literary standpoint, the first three bowls, one verse 16, two, 16, three, 16, four, one verse for each of them. But now the fourth bowl and the fifth bowl, they each get two verses. And again, the verse numbers are, are were added in, but the point is it's just longer. It's just the is content longer. is longer. Yeah. yeah, the content is longer. All right. So the pouring out of the fifth bowl now is the effects of the beast's power. The beast's actions lead them to the inevitable end result of utter darkness. Because why? They walk around in darkness, as Paul would say, not knowing where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. So unfortunately, again they failed to repent. In fact, they not only failed to repent, but they blaspheme the God of heaven. Hmm. And this goes along with the God. This is why you're just in your judgments. Your judgment is just because they blaspheme the God of heaven. The failure to repent then, I, I think, contrasts what happens with the, result, with the ministry of the two witnesses or to your analogy of the Jonah story. Uh, and that is in John's account of the two witnesses in chapter 11, it says they became terrified and gave glory to that God of heaven because the two witnesses were, were risen from the dead. But now, unfortunately, they fail to repent. And what's interesting is the only two passages where the God of heaven is used is in the account of the two witnesses and the repenting of the nations and the account of the fifth bowl where they fail to repent and they blaspheme the God of heaven. Okay. Yeah. The sixth bowl, verse 12, this is a longer, it gets substantially longer from it. Even fuller, longer. We should say from a yeah, content standpoint. Yeah. So verse 12 through 16, verses 12 through 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Once again, that's just like Egypt language. You have the frogs now. <laughs> demonic, 
Yeah. Yeah. They are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of the God, the Almighty. So it's the battle, uh, or I guess just right. for battle. So that would actually be a question for what we've learned earlier. Is it the battle and the war? They say the same things, but we'll get to that in a second. It, Verse 15. It is correct, yeah. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called ooh, NRSV. Huh. Harmageddon. Oh, so they NRC actually puts it as Harmageddon. Most translations okay. are Harmageddon. Yeah, that's correct. Let me actually, while I have it right here, look at our translation, chapter 16, verse 16. Let's see. And a New American Standard says Harmageddon. Okay. Uh, ESV says Armageddon with an A. Yes. Yeah. Net Bible says Armageddon. Uh, NIV, Armageddon, of course. New Living Translation, Armageddon. New King James, Armageddon. Uh, and New Revised Standard, Harmageddon. So only the yeah. New Revised Standard and the New American yeah. standard to say har with an H sound. That's correct. Yeah, I also had that a CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, and that also has Armageddon. Yeah. So most of them um, outside of New American Standard and Revised, yeah. everything is going to be Armageddon. That's correct. So notice in verse 12, the waters of the Euphrates dry up. That again reminds of this Exodus theme that you pointed out also with the frogs, which is the second of the Exodus plagues. The Exodus here, however, is different because the water dries up in the Exodus so that God's people can pass through it, whereas the water dries up here so that the kings of the earth can pass through it to wage war. But even more significant is the parallel with the sixth trumpet. And this is going to be important later on because we're not going to discuss Armageddon in too much detail now, but we have to wait a little bit further in the story, chapters 19 and 20, that we can really build a better picture of what's happening in Armageddon. But it's important to notice the sixth trumpet and the sixth bowl are certainly linked by the fact that they both refer to an army crossing the Euphrates. And guess what? The only two uses of the word Euphrates are in the sixth bowl and in the sixth trumpet, which is an indication the author wants us to link these two accounts. Now, just mentioned that the frogs look like the frogs of the plagues from Egypt, and of course, they're demonic spirits. And John, in fact, specifically says that the spirit of demons doing signs Remember, signs is what the false prophet was able to do. He performed miraculous signs. So he even caused the whole world to worship the beast and his image. Now, the false prophet, of course, uses those signs to deceive the nations. Whereas here in the sixth bowl, the signs are given to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war. And of mm. course, that's the war going back to chapter 13 that we'll discuss more as we proceed. So the idea then is, the false prophet, if we link the two passages, the false prophet's deception is ultimately to gather the nations to war against, well, it's God's people. Remember, what war is what the nations do. Of course, we could discuss that for a long time right now because guess what's happening in our world? It's mm -hmm. war. It's what the nations do. And that's why I keep trying to tell people what's happening in Israel, Gaza. It's not just Israel's right to defend itself. It's way beyond that. It's what the nations do and it's not what God's kingdom does or God's people are supposed to do. We cannot endorse this war, even if it's, oh, it's justified because it's the right of self-defense. And we did a live stream, as you and I are recording this, I did one two nights ago with Jonathan Kutab. I think it's listed as number 15 in the Israel-Gaza series on the YouTube channel for Determined Truth. And we discussed that. The right of self-defense actually goes both ways because the Palestinians have the right of defense. And one of the things that we discussed there was Actually, if you break into my house, Vinny, and attack my family, I have the right of self-defense. You don't have the right of self-defense. If I start attacking you, 
mm-hmm. defend myself. That you're the intruder, and technically mm-hmm. Israel's the intruder. Now, mm-hmm. certainly Hamas intruded into Israel, but that's because they were defending themselves because of Israel's oppressions. But it actually it goes both ways here. So, but beyond the point here, what those in power do is they wage war, and they wage war to gain power or maintain their power. And it's not what God's people are supposed to endorse. We're supposed to endorse the way of Christ, which is blessed are the peacemakers and ending wars. And that's what the church should be speaking out about. This is what the nations do. And obviously it's amply uh, well illustrated here. Okay. In reading this section, which was really long, Mm -hmm. verse 15 pops out at me, especially because our translators and I'm in both the ESV and the NRSV, they make these parenthetical statements. They'll put these parentheses in and so it will read, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. This just seems really out of place because now this is like this challenge to God's people, to the ones who have an ear to hear, the ones who are trying to overcome or something like that. So that's just critical to observe what you just observed, that in the middle of this Armageddon description, so the sixth bowl is verses 12, 13, 14, and 16. In the middle is this parenthetical statement. And I did notice all English translations have it in parentheses because it is. Mm -hmm. It's describing a war from the frog-like demonic beings gathering the kings of the earth to battle together. Oh, and the place they gather together is Armageddon. But in the middle of that is, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Yeah, That's an exhortation that's used to the churches. I'm coming like a thief to the churches. And blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him. That's to the churches. Mm. So here's this interruption to exhort the people of God. And of course, it's likely the words of Jesus, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Um, And it parallels the message of the church in Sardis. You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I've not found your deeds pleasant in the sight of my God. And if you will not wake up, verse 3 of chapter 3, I will come as a thief. So there's this exhortation to stay awake that reminds us of the church in Sardis that was not staying awake. And if you don't, I'll come like a thief. And if you do stay awake, it's going to be good because you won't go about naked and, and, and man wants to see your shame. And of course, the verb to walk is used in chapter 3, verse 4, and chapter 16, verse 15. So there's no question that this parenthetical statement is parenthetical. It's interrupting the description of this war of Armageddon or, or Armageddon or this final battle and the description of the sixth bull, is an exhortation to the people of God. And, of course, notice the reference to garments in the message of the church in Sardis. Uh, There are some in Sardis who have not sold their garments, and they'll walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And and chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, and now in chapter 16, verse 15. Okay, so is that a significant thing to look for as well, the fact that garments would be mentioned here in verse 15, and then also in in the Sardis passage in chapter 3? Yeah. Yeah, so you have a reference to garments, you have reference to walk, you have reference to a Mm -hmm. thief, you have reference to waking up. All those references there parallel the message of the church in Sardis. So it's a parenthetical exhortation to God's people to wake up, to be prepared. And the idea that this war is being described then says what? It confirms what I'm going to argue much more thoroughly when we get to chapters 19 and 20 that I've already mentioned a number of times before, and that is the war in the book of Revelation is always directed at God's people. It's Satan's war by means of the beasts, or which ultimately are the nations, and it's explicitly the nations here, the kings of the earth. They gather to wage war against God's people. 
The reason why we know it's against God's people is because in the middle of the description of Armageddon, it's you guys better wake up and be ready for this. Why would this it would be radically out of place? What does us waking up having to be ready for this have to do with Armageddon when it's the battle of the nations of the world against Israel? It, it's, that's not what's happening. It's well, the and you're saying that because it's more against God's people. The popular idea of Armageddon is that, yeah, say popular amongst the popular crowd in America over the last hundred years, Armageddon happens in that timeline where the church has already been raptured and is gone, and this is just a geopolitical battle. Yeah, and, and even and if you don't say, believe in a pre-trib rapture, you still believe uh -huh. in this gathering of the nations together against Israel, and that's why people think, oh, what's happening in Gaza? You can't condemn Israel because this is actually this apocalyptic war that the Bible describes of the nations mm -hmm. waging against it. So Israel must be the good guys in the story. It's like, that's not what the battle in Scripture is about. It's about mm -hmm. the war that Satan wages against God's people, and his primary weapon is deception. But th mm. There are three unclean spirits that look like frogs. The mouth is a source of your words. And the fact that the words that are coming out are demonic, frog-like beings means Satan's waging war by using deception against the church. Oh, and guess what? It's working really well because we think the modern war right now in Gaza is mm. the war that Satan's waging against Israel. See, he's deceived us. Mm. We're condoning a war. Because we've been deceived by the dragon to think this is what the war looks like when the war is what Satan wages against the church. And what does that mean? Guess what? When we endorse war that includes what appears to be genocide, it makes the church look ridiculously bad. It harms our witness to the nth degree. Mm -hmm. The nations of the world go, we have nothing to do with America and Christianity because look what you do. It's a perfect example of Satan deceiving us exactly as Revelation 16, 12 through 16 describe is exactly what we see playing out. That's the irony. I'm sorry. That's a prime example of this. I got, I got a little passionate there, but yeah, first you time. see why. Yeah, yeah I know for sure. <laughs> I'm curious though, because in previous episodes, I forget where it was at. You made note that when it, the first time it mentioned the war, it used like the definite yeah. article. Yes, oh, the war, like the one you already know about. That's right. Here it's using the term battle. I didn't look it up in Greek, but is there anything distinguishing the war versus a battle? We even use that, that terminology. Oh, you won the battle, but you lost the war. Are, are we talking about two different events here or, or why well, would that term be used? It's the same Greek word in each instance. So, really? Yeah, it's the same Greek word. That's the word for battle or war. And you can translate it either way, but the key is to translate it the same way each time it occurs because now you know how to link it. The word occurs okay. seven times. There's no difference in the Greek word at all. It's the word for war that's been used earlier. So okay. the, the okay. war of chapter 11, verse 7, that the beast wages, same word. The war that Satan is wages in heaven and he's kicked out, same word. The war that the beast wages against the people of God in 13, verse 7, same word. Here it is again. And we're going to see it mm -hmm. in chapter 19 and chapter 20. And we know that the language and the description, it's the same war. It, absolutely and clearly the same war. And that means it's the war that the beast wages against the two witnesses. It's mm. not a, a battle that takes place in modern day Israel. Okay. Yeah. And at the takeaway is though, the people should be encouraged to be prepared because it's yeah. not going to be easy. So overcome. Yeah. This, this is the same yeah. message that you're hearing through the, starting in chapter two of this book. Yeah. I might use the word exhorted because yeah. I'm not sure that we're encouraged because this is bad news for us. So you're exhorted yeah. to stay awake and be ready and be prepared. And remember the phrase, stay awake and keep your garment. That idea comes from Matthew 24, where Jesus is like, be ready, be, keep watch out. And what that looks like is the one 
who cares for the members of God's household and gives them their food at the proper time. Ah, yeah. being faithful followers of Christ and faithful within the body of Christ, that's what it means to stay awake and keep their garments with them. Yeah. Uh, let me when, make, when we read this another connection. Okay. I'm, and let me make another connection really quickly. I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but another connection also would be the fact that the great multitude that comes out of the great tribulation, they're also given white garments that were washed white in the blood of the lamb. Ah, the clothing seven, yes. is what we're given to the faithfulness of being obedient to Christ and bearing witness for him and loving our enemies and loving our neighbors and doing what Christ has called us to do. That's what it means to be faithful. And we have to do that because Satan's waging war trying to get us to make a mockery of the churches we're doing in Israel, Gaza, or Ukraine, or anywhere else that we're condoning war. Okay. We hope you're enjoying the podcast, and we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel, is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. We talked briefly about the translational difference between Armageddon yeah. and Harmageddon. Why is that significant? I'm not sure that it's ultimately significant other than the fact that the translation Armageddon with an A is a, led to abuse because Armageddon means battle of Megiddo. Okay. Armageddon means the Mount of Megiddo. So they gather them together to the place that is called Armageddon would be the Mount of Megiddo. Which is the way it reads together, in Greek. That's the way it likely reads, reads in the Greek. The Greek okay. manuscript evidence is a little bit skewed. The most likely reading is Armageddon. Now, here's what happens in the, when the manuscripts have the, this discrepancy. A, we go, some manuscripts are favored because they're older, they're proven more faithful in all these other passages, so they're more trustworthy. So we have some manuscripts that are just simply more trustworthy. And then we have other manuscripts, however, there's like an abundance of them, and they're also earlier. So we have maybe sometimes there's like trustworthy manuscripts that don't agree. What do we do? What do we do then? Okay, that's not the problem here. We have one major manuscript here that is trustworthy and it says Armageddon, but we do have a lot of other manuscripts later on that say Armageddon. What do we do there? Now, in Greek, there's no letter H, right? Uh, I was going to ask about that. How would you yeah, tell yeah. the difference? Because it, it yeah. has to do with so the breath it's a, mark. It's, it's the breathing yeah. mark. Exactly. Yeah. So it, what we might call kind of like a quotation mark, if you think mm -hmm. of it that way, and for your like for a single quotation mark, yeah. a single quotation mark. Mm -hmm. If that single quotation mark goes to the right, it's har. Mm -hmm. If it goes to the left, like a, an end quote would be, it's silent, which would be Armageddon. Do you add the H sound in or not as the question? And the best manuscript we have says yes. The abundance of manuscripts that we have later on say no. Okay. So the next question that we ask is this. So our first question is, what do the good manuscripts say, the ones that are most reliable say? The next question then becomes, what would cause a scribe to change it. In other words, if a scribe comes across one reading and says, no, I'm going to go with this reading, and then everybody thereafter copies that scribe. Somebody made a change. They either added the breathing mark and made it to the right, or they made it to the left, a rough breathing or a smooth breathing. It's either an H sound or it's not an H sound. So somebody changed it. So then the question becomes, which reading makes the most sense that they would change it from this to this? The problem is this. Megiddo is a city in a valley of Megiddo, or the plain of Jezreel, it's not a mountain. There's mm -hmm. no mountain there. 
So there's no way anyone would change it from Armageddon to Harmageddon because there is an amount of Megiddo. It makes more sense to say it was Harmageddon, the harder reading, and someone changed it to Armageddon. So that's mm. your Greek lesson for the day. The point of that is we still can't be certain, but it makes the best sense that the harder reading is with the H sound, Harmageddon, and that someone would change it to Armageddon because there is no mountain. And the harder reading is supported in the best manuscript that we have. We don't have a lot of really good manuscripts with the book of Revelation. We have two, but one of them doesn't have the ending of the book. So mm. it's ended by now. Yeah. So we can appeal to that one. We only, we're only left with one for the rest of the book now. So the point then is, why would it say Mount of Megiddo? And that is this. There's two passages in the Old Testament, Zechariah 12, verse 11, and then Ezekiel 38 and 39, both describe this final battle. Zechariah 12 is the only place that mentions Megiddo. And there it's the plain of Megiddo, not a Mount of Megiddo. So again, you can see why a scribe would change it to confirm to Zechariah 12. But Ezekiel 38 and 39, which is certainly in John's purview. And, we, and that's the Gog and Magog stuff, right? That's the Gog and Magog passage. Mm -hmm. that, that's right. There's no question, and I bring this out a little bit in my commentary, but we just can't go into this kind of depth here in a podcast. There's no question that John's reading the ending of Ezekiel. It almost follows the outline from Ezekiel 36, or at least Ezekiel 37 through Ezekiel 47, 40. It's just following the outline of the last 12 chapters of the book of Ezekiel. And so that's certainly in John's purview, but in Ezekiel 38 and 39, it says the final battle takes place on the mountains of Israel. Hmm. So it could be that John's combining these two, the Megiddo from Zechariah and the mountain imagery from Ezekiel, and it makes it on the Mount of Megiddo. Now remember, mountains represent kingdoms. So it's the kings of the earth that are battling. Remember in the sixth seal, they call to the mountains and to the, uh, to the rocks to fall on us. It's not mountains themselves. It's the nations represented by the fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day the wrath has come and who's able to stand. So I think it's just mountain being used as imagery of kingdoms combining Zechariah 12 and Ezekiel 38 and 39. And therefore, again, it's not this actual mountain. And I think there's many people go to Mount Megiddo today. Yep. If you do it, yep. uh, it's not a mountain. It's what's called a tell. A tell is an archaeological site where a city is built on top of a prior city and it becomes a mountain or a hill. And the tell of Megiddo has like seven different tells built on, on this one tell is like mm. seven different civilizations. So it's a hill that, oh, look, it's a mountain. And you stand on top of the mountain and you see the remains of, of Megiddo there. It's only, it's an archaeological tell. It's not a mountain. It's an art, it's artificial construct of a city being built upon a city, upon a city, upon a city. Because again, it's in a plain. So you leave the rest of the plain for agricultural purposes and you build a new civilization on top of where the other one was because the rest of the valley is fertile. So you're going to grow crops there. So sorry mm -hmm. to burst your bubble. If you've been to Israel, you didn't go to the Mount of Megiddo. There is no such mountain. Nice. One thing that we need to look at though is when we look at those fourth and fifth bowls, nothing survives. It's total annihilation. So in the time frame of Revelation, there's no chapter 17. Like nothing is continuing on after this. This is the end. Yeah. Each one of the bowl of the bowls is describing an element of the final judgment. It's not some linear thing that's happening. This is describing Armageddon, but it's describing Armageddon as the climactic element of that battle that's being waged by the beast against God's people since the beginning of time.
Which is funny because the passage doesn't really say what happens at Armageddon. It just says that there's going to be this Armageddon. The climax of this whole thing is this battle. So now we're going to see, you're expecting yeah. to see the saving private Ryan moment or that moment where it's like, okay, now this D-Day landing has happened. What happened? But that, none of that shows up. In fact, in none of the references of the war, seven times, the war occurs in the book of Revelation. Do we have any description of the final battle? The only thing we might have is in chapter 20, it says, and then fire came down from heaven and devoured them. They all gather, it says in Revelation 20, they gather around the great city of God and fire comes down from heaven and devours them. Okay, that's it. And hey, which so is not how we tell stories. Battle. Like, exactly. I'm thinking Lord of the Rings, Gandalf is leading his white horse to fight Mordor. You have uh, the Avengers Endgame where Avengers assemble and everyone's battling Thanos. Like, none of that happens here. What a scene that was, too. That was long, that scene of yes. that battle against Thanos. That was yes. really long. It was incredible. Yeah, that yeah. does not happen in the book of Revelation because there is no final eschatological mm -hmm. actual battle taking place on Earth. And the whole idea is... It's, uh, it's hogwash. It's just, it's ludicrous. Yeah. And it's deception from the devil getting us to look in the wrong place. Yeah. So that brings us to our next question then. If the bowls are final judgment, and that's where we're seeing here, why would the church need to stay awake if, if we're already out of there? Or because the popular idea is that God cannot pour his wrath out on the world if God's people are there because he only pours it out on his right. enemy. But that's why the church needs to be out of here. And this is the popular idea of a rapture. So, yeah. If we're reading this text, though, we're it's seeming like God's people are still here. We just had that parenthetical statement about staying awake. So why do we need to stay awake if we're out of here? Because we all know that because the we're not war, out of here. <laughs> yeah, because the war is what's happening now. You need to stay awake now. Sardis, wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which we're about to die. I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. All right? And if you don't wake up, I'm coming like a thief. So that the war is a present war, this passage mm. is describing it in its eschatological final judgment context. It's the end of it. That is it. The war is a present reality from chapters 11, 12, and 13. Therefore, stay awake. Yeah. Okay. Finally, the seventh bowl. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plagues of the hail because the plague was so severe. So th if there, the end didn't happen earlier, this is definitely the end, right? <laughs> it says it is done. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, this is the end. So remember the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh bowl all bring us to the end of the story. The seventh seal said, the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? In chapter 6, verse 17. In, chapter, in the seventh trumpet, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, and he will reign forever and ever, in chapter 11, verse 15. So this is the end, and it says, it is done. Mm. Okay. You also have this, what we could call theophanic manifestations, and we referred to this in earlier podcasts. We did. So in chapter 4, verse 5, the theophanic manifestations, which means the, the presence of God being manifested. In chapter 4, verse 5, the throne room scene said, out of the throne come flash of lightning, sounds, and peals of thunder. So mm. what that means is that the seals, trumpets, and bowls are all referring back to this throne room scene. 
and each occurrence then expands this throne room scene. So in chapter 8, verse 5, it's flash of lightning, sound, twist of thunder, and an earthquake. That's at the end of the seven seals. At the end of the seven trumpets, in chapter 11, verse 19, there was flash of lightning, sound, twist of thunder, an earthquake, and a hailstorm. Okay, so just each one's keeping expanding on. Now, not only does it expand, though there's nothing added. It doesn't add a new feature. It expands it to five verses. There was a great earthquake, so great that there was nothing ever like it on the earth. And hailstorm, like there are 100 pounds each that fell down upon man's. It's it, really expanding this in the final sense. It's just a literary device to carry the narrative forward. Every time the narrative goes forward, it expands something or it intensifies mm. something. But the purpose is to link what's happening with God's justice from the throne. Because if you're in the throne, O Lord, how long, O Lord, until you bring mm. justice? And therefore, the seals, trumpets, and bowls each end with, now I'm bringing justice. Interesting. It reads, I'm always curious about this in verse 21, that these great hailstones that are 100 pounds each. Obviously, John's not going to say 100 pounds because that's a measuring mm -hmm. category that doesn't exist in his world. It, what would it say that's in right. the Greek? The Greek says a talent. Typically, we go, if it's 100 pounds, like what's the actual number? Because we know the numbers mm -hmm. are significant. There's actually no number here. Okay. It's actually a talent. And a talent, you might think, well, talent's a Roman coin. And actually, it's a Roman unit of measure. Okay. And the weight of a talent, this is one talent. So the weight of a talent was 125 Roman pounds. But a Roman pound is 12 ounces each. I think our pounds like, what, 16 ounces, I think. So it's about 90 or so pounds. I was looking at this earlier. I think one of our English translations, it might be the NLT, says 75 pounds. Okay. The rest of them say about 100 pounds. The yeah. point is, it, was, it weighed like a ton. It was yeah. huge. Yeah. And again... It, this can't be real because if there really are hailstones this large, there's no one alive going, God, I'm blaspheming God. It's like, no, you're dead, <laughs> yeah. dude. Yeah. You're, it, it's not literal. Yeah. Yeah. We also see earthquakes in the Bible, but, uh, you know, here as well. These often come from God and his justice. Is that what it means here? Is that what his, the imagery would be? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, they can represent the presence of God, like on Mount Sinai, or okay. God and His justice. Yeah. Okay. As a result of the earthquakes, John notes that the great split city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. What is the great city? Should we read that as Jerusalem? It, it makes sense, but what we see is that the great city is used several times. In chapter 11, verse 8, the two witnesses, their bodies lie in the great city, which, quote, is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their mm -hmm. Lord was crucified. Now we think Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, but mm -hmm. remember, Sodom and Egypt, Sodom's a city, but Egypt's not a city. I think what actually it's describing is ultimately Rome. In fact, oh. later on, in 1718, it says, the woman whom you saw is the great city which mm -hmm. reigns over the kings of the earth. So there's that expression, great city, and it's being used to describe Rome. As, and we'll defend the idea that the woman actually represents Rome in our next episode. Okay. Because uh, we're going to finish chapter 16 in this one episode, Vinny. We're going to do it. We can make it, man. Yeah. 16 verse 20, John says, every island fled and the mountains were not found. They were playing like the best peekaboo game ever. <laughs> yeah. If this is literal. Again, mountains and islands is probably just a figurative reference to kings and kingdoms. And it's just the seventh bowl is the destruction of the imperial powers. We'll see this in chapter 17 and 18 in more detail. Okay. It finally ends with, in both my translations, it says they cursed God. We oftentimes, in our modern times, we might think, oh, they said they took God's name in vain. They said, gosh darn it, in the bad way. Is that what this is referring to? They just say God's name is a swear word? Or is this more like a blasphemy it, it, idea? 
it's a it's blasphemous failure to repent that's the bottom line okay it's still giving allegiance to the beasts and not to god and it goes along with what i said that the judgment of god or the wrath of god does not lead to repentance that's not what it's about it's the eschatological judgment of god at the end of the time and there's actually no opportunity for repenting but even if there were they wouldn't repent anyways i think is the implication okay so yeah. we finished that chapter we finished all of armageddon we did it is not as complex as we think it is it's complex no. in that we have to recalibrate exactly and maybe deconstruct ways we've been taught this yeah. but the idea is that don't think that armageddon is a future event that we don't have to worry about because we're going to be raptured out of here whatever this thing is wherever it is it's something that has been happening it's something the nations wage on the people of god and so guess what in a sense we're in it now yeah, and we're suffering it now. And if you don't think we're mm -hmm. suffering it now, just look at the Christians in North Korea, look at the Christians in Nigeria, look at the Christians in China, mm -hmm. look at Christians mm -hmm. in Gaza. And the other thing I would add is, it's, and it's not a literal war that takes place in the battlefields of the world so that the Christians are actually condoning warfare as we've been doing for way too long of American Christian history. Yeah, and it's interesting too, because we, you know, you think of warfare in this ancient kind of way, but even in our modern times, we know that warfare can be redefined. We have cyber war, right? Cyber yeah. attacks, yeah. which is, I'm not experiencing any physical attack that happens there, but this is something that happens in the same way. We need to think of spiritual warfare in the way where it's not always going to be tanks and missiles and that sort of thing. Something else could be happening and you might not be experiencing distorted limb or a, a destructed house or something like that, but it's still happening. And so we're just, we're watching yeah. for the wrong thing when we're only expecting chariots and army tanks. Yeah. And Satan's primary weapon is deception. And the irony is we've been deceived to think that actually it's physical battle of warfare and it takes place in the battlefields and we're condoning war and bloodshed and destruction. We're not weeping as we should be weeping when we see this and yeah. violence only begets violence. Yep. Yep. Okay, good stuff. So next week we will be in the yeah. chapter 17 and we finished with enough time where I could eat a little snack before I go into a meeting with my boss for my weekly oh, meeting. Oh, cool. Very cool. So look at Me everyone too. wins. What a great Wednesday. You You're meeting with your boss? <laughs> yeah, I'm meeting with my boss. Yeah. <laughs> good. Hey, 17 next week. We will see everyone then. Goodbye. You can no, we won't see then. anyone then, Vinny. I keep trying to see. tell you this. They see us on YouTube. Oh, that's true. Okay, yeah, actually, you're right now. Look at this now. It might, I was prophetic yeah. words. You're I mean, prophetic. Word of faith. I've been speaking it into existence for years. <laughs> I'm turning this recording happening. off. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.